Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. So friends, we've been in this sermon series entitled The Upper Room, Intimacy with Jesus. We've been looking at what is theologians call the farewell discourse of Jesus, the last words that he gives to his disciples before, he, as we know, he is arrested and then he's crucified on a cross and then he arises again three days later from the dead. These are the last words that Jesus has for his disciples, kind of like a coach just before they're about to go out. And these words that we're going to read today, they're really sobering. The coach is saying, hey, this is going to be tough. This first quarter is going to be really gnarly. It's going to be slaughter, in fact, of me and in some ways of you. It's going to be very, very hard. But it's okay because I have a game plan. It's all right. There is something else coming. You know, the farewell discourse begins in John 13. And there Jesus washes his disciples' feet Uh, amazing moment when you think the king of the universe bending down and washing the gnarly dirty feet of his ragtag bunch of followers they're symbolically cleansed and then of course they're cleansed in another way because the betrayer Judas leaves their midst he goes out to stab in Jesus and sell him out for a bag of coins but their community in that way is cleansed but then Jesus begins with his final words and he says This is how all people will know that you're my disciples, when you love one another. It's not the haircut you have. It's not the opinions you have. It's not the way you vote. It's not the car that you drive. This is how people will know when you radically love one another. And here today, we're going to come into end. After this, Jesus is going to be praying for his disciples as we bend our way down towards Easter. But these last words, Jesus says, suffering is inevitable. My victory is is assured. Your growth is optional. So that's where we're going to pick it up today. We're in John chapter 16. And I'm going to read it out. It's take a couple of minutes or so to read it out. But as I do it, I want you, if you will, to envision yourself being in this intimate setting with Jesus and the now 11 disciples who are left there in these close confines. They've been uh, eating together. Uh, Jesus has led them in the Lord's Supper like we're going to do later on. And he's speaking to them. But it's funny, they don't really understand everything that's happening. They understand a little bit, but not everything. And it's almost comedic, but for the fact that it's a heavy subject matter. But let's get into it. We're going to pick it up here at verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying in a little while you'll see me no more and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father, which Jesus had said earlier, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. It's kind of like me around the table with my kids, my wife laughing to the side as I'm trying to explain to them something. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. They didn't ask him, but he saw in his kindness. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and after a little while you'll see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And all the mamas out there be like, "Uh uh-huh, you know it. So with you, Jesus says. Now 
is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And here Jesus gives his mission. I came from the Father and I entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you don't even need to have any questions asked of you. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus says, do you now believe? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, as we come to your word today, I'm reminded, we're reminded that we do not understand everything about you. There's a degree of mystery around you. And yet we see that you move in power and we believe and we ask you to move in power today, giving us, if we had a scant, tiny skerrick, giving us a thimble full of understanding. If we had a thimble full, Lord, give us a cup full of understanding. Amplify your voice, Lord. Diminish my voice because you are the wonderful one that we come to learn from. In your name, amen. Now, friends, many of you know that me and my family have been away uh, for a couple of months in Western Australia. Uh, We were out there uh, to see my family, but also to be with my father who was very sick and eventually he died and we ran his funeral. The first thing I want to say is thank you so much as a church family for releasing us with the time and enabling us with the finances and the the time off to be able to get out there and to be part of that. It meant the world to us. Thank you so much. The second thing I want to say, and a number of you have asked me, yes, my dad did know and love and follow Jesus. He lived a good life and he died a good death. And it surprises me how rarely we can say that. He died without uh, any unfinished business, no resentments, no unforgiveness, nothing like that. He redlined through the pearly gates. And it's a bit overwhelming to think that he's now talking with the Lord face to face. The last thing that I wanted to say, and it's apropos for what we're going to look at today, is that whilst dad was sick and he was at home, he, he died at home, Um, I'd go around in the morning, we were staying quite close and and see mum, give her a hug and then I'd go in and and speak with dad and I'd read him the Bible and uh, we would talk because at the end his eyes, it was hard for him to speak and and to read and we would talk and, and, and this one day we were talking about there's something mysterious about how God on this side of the river, on this side of eternity, how God commingles sorrow and joy. There's something, if we allow him, there's something that he does. It's some kind of alchemy. It's some beautiful thing, miraculous thing that God does. That if we allow him even over time, 
he can turn sadness, even the worst of sadness, into joy. It's a bit of a mysterious thing. How was it with the disciples? As we begin looking at this passage, like I said, I think it's kind of hilarious. They're like, you know, Jesus is saying, in a little while you'll see me no more. And they're like, a little while? What does a little while mean? Do you understand it? I don't understand what it means. Time, times and half a time. I mean, what the heck does that even mean? And they're going on. And, and Jesus here is trying to get across to them in a way that they can understand so that they can retroflect back on it and see what he was meaning. I mean, we look back upon it with 2,000 years of the benefit of hindsight, reading scripture with cross eyes, reading it and interpreting it through the cross and the resurrection of Christ, and rightly so, we know what Jesus is talking about. Do they know? Jesus even says later on in verse 25 that he's been speaking to them figuratively. A time is coming when he won't, but right now he's speaking to them in these terms. The first kind of preliminary thing I want to say about this passage is that I believe it is God's kindness that he reveals to us at a pace that we can understand. And whether a baby Christian or a very mature Christian, whether we're just absolutely heaven bent on him or whether we're just questioning, he meets us where we are at. Jesus met these guys where they were at. Now, we know how the story goes, but of course, these now 11 disciples in the upper room, they didn't know how this was going to go. And absolutely none of them could have dreamed in a million years that this Messiah, that they had a sense that this is the Messiah, this is the chosen one. I don't even think at this point they fully understood that he was God's son. And none of them would have thought that he'd go to the cross to die for their sin and my sin and your sin, the awful things you've done and I've done and they've done, the awful things that humans do to each other, that the shame and the horror and the condemnation and the slime, he took it upon himself on the cross and he took it and he buried it in eternity and he rose again from the dead. None of them would have dreamt of that. I mean, these were first century Jews. They, they all each came from different kind of subcultures. One of them was called Simon the Zealot. Now, the zealots were guys who believed that, that the Messiah, when he came, would take over by force. He would ride in on a huge white steed, fire breathing out its nostrils. He would lop off the heads of the Romans and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth in a bloody morass of bodies. There was another guy, Matthew Levi, who wrote the biography of Jesus we call Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was in cahoots with the Romans. And I don't know, I'm extrapolating, but maybe he thought that the Messiah, and if it was Jesus, that he would come and that he would somehow use political machinations to gain power. We don't know. There, of course, was Simon, who I love, Simon Peter, um, you know, and, and he sort of trends towards Pharisaism, and so do I a little bit. Might be my legal training, and that's a confession to you all. But there was this belief they had that, that Messiah would come. He would perfectly live according to the law. And if we could somehow emulate him and live in that perfect way, that somehow this new era would come in. But all of them, none of them dreamed, all of them were wrong, that, that actually Jesus would come, that he would die on a cross. But Jesus is speaking to them at the level that they could understand so that they could think back in the days, literally in the hours to come, and think, wow, I wonder if that is what Jesus was talking about. This is horrible. This travail and this heartache right now. As we're watching him die on the cross, is he's dead. How can Messiah die? The one who was meant to save us. They might retroflect and they might think upon this. 
Jesus goes on and he says, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Of course, many people did rejoice that this upstart from Galilee, this peasant, he had no right to be talking about God. He had no right to be equating himself with God. Many did rejoice. But he goes on and he says, You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now, this is referencing a, uh, a common image throughout Scripture, through Isaiah and many of the Psalms, that, that our, in the Lord, in the strength of his might, that our grieving can turn to dancing, that our sorrows can be turned to joy. The image that Jesus uses here is of a woman giving birth. Now, that's not been our story because we became parents by way of adoption. But I have friends who've gone through it, and man, they are traumatized. The, the kind of screaming and the craziness. And I'm talking about the guys. I'm not even talking about the women, right? The guys who were like, oh, I was here and I was watching my wife and there was blood coming out and she was screaming. And they're like, you know, let alone the women who are infinitely tougher and, and more amazing, right? But then the baby comes and it's so amazing. This life, this new life, this miraculous thing. We had some friends who had a, a baby boy a couple of weeks ago, Titus, and he's just so cute. Oh my gosh, he's got these little toes. They're like fat little maggots. They just want to bite, you know? And he's just this cutest little dude. But when that comes, it somehow brings meaning or brings perspective to the travail and the hardship and the suffering that came before. And he says in that day, in verse 23, you notice it, it recurs down in verse 26. And, and then um, he, he also says a time is coming in verse 25 and, and down in uh, verse 31, a time is coming, a time is coming. Yet in that day, he's looking forwards. He's saying, friends, I need you to have a different perspective. Don't look out the side windows. Don't look in the rear vision mirror. I want you to be looking out the windshield. Be squinting towards the horizon. Something new is coming. You mayn't understand it. You mayn't have a full understanding of it, but something different is coming. And friends, that rests in resurrection hope. Now, I don't need to tell you, those of us who are living on this side of eternity, that suffering is endemic to the human condition. There is all sorts of awfulness that we face, that many of you have faced. We are betrayed, we are bemeaned, we are assaulted. We go through hardship. Yes, there's beauty in the world, great beauty. But there's also great hardship. And especially right now, at this time, there's this term I've heard, ambiguous loss right now, where we're grieving something that we don't even fully understand. I don't understand where this time is going. It's a, a time of unknown duration that we're in this kind of social moment. I'm, I, I feel like I might be missing out on these relationships. I feel I'm, I might be missing out on these opportunities. Ambiguous loss. Right now, I, I was at the bottom line um, community business mixer the other day, and they were saying that mental health, there's a mental health crisis. 85% of people in our society feel their, their mental health has declined from a year ago. 89% of them feel like they, they are more adrift in their careers. Many have lost jobs. Porn addiction is through the roof. Anxiety is through the roof. Jennifer Arl, who is running an anxiety course, said they had so many people who want to do it. They were oversubscribed. They need to run it again. Spousal abuse, drug abuse, substance abuse, it's all on the rise. Friends, this is a tough time. I, I don't need to tell you that. But what I want you to know is that while suffering is inevitable, Jesus' victory is assured. 
Our growth is optional. So what would it look like? Where does it begin? I believe it begins in understanding who Jesus is and what he did. And this brings us to verse 28, where he talks about his, it's kind of the most distilled version of Jesus' mission that we have in scripture. I came from the Father and I entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. He lived in unapproachable light. He is the uncreated creator of all. He came down to earth. He took on flesh. He made his dwelling among us, it says in the first chapter of John. He, he lived a vulnerable life, a human life. He knew sin. He knew temptation. He never sinned himself, but he saw it all around him. He saw human brokenness in all of its fullness. He died on a cross where he was tortured and he was whipped and beaten before that. I mean, he, he understood it. He entered the world. He entered our suffering. And the writer of this, John, the beloved apostle, in a letter he later wrote in 1 John 3, chapter 8, he said, this is why the Son of Man appeared, to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the works of enemy Satan. Enemy Satan, he wants to prolong suffering. He wants to snuff out resurrection hope. He wants us to think that this is all there is, this travail, this heartache, this hardship, this is all there is, and there is nothing more. But Jesus promises something else, and he gives a little hint of it. He gives an allusion to it here, where he's talking about in that day. In that day, you will call out to the Lord, and he will hear you. You will not need to go through me. It's not some cosmic kind of telegraph where we tell Jesus, Jesus tells the Spirit, the Spirit tells the Lord God Most High. He says, you can talk with your father directly now to those who are hearing this the disciples and also the early church that would have had this biography of Jesus read out to them this was mind-blowing this is the Lord most high dare you even say his name in Hebrew they weren't even allowed to say his name how how precocious to come before him that you will not yea verily be snuffed out smited on the spot no, Jesus says, you will be able to come before him. And Mark last week talked about the beautiful intimacy that the Spirit allows, this advocate, this counselor, this one who connects us to God the Father. It's mind-boggling. And he says, ask in my name and you'll receive. Now, I want to say, just as an aside, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not the blab it and grab it. I want to mention in Jesus' name, you know, bada boom, bada bing. That's not, that's not how it works. Where the Bible uses the term in the name of, or you know someone's name, it's talking about their personality, their character. If you are asking that which is in alignment with Jesus, his character, his nature, his values, the Lord will powerfully answer that prayer. Lord, my spouse is just dreadful. If only they could be more like me. God will answer that prayer, hopefully with some chastening attached to it. God, these friends I have, they're just, oh, show me how to love them. I don't know how to love them. These neighbours that I have, these people at my workplace, Lord, show me how to love them. This injustice I'm seeing, give me your inclination. Give me your ideas and your innovations, how we as your people can address this. Things that are in line with God's name, he will answer those prayers. That's what's, what comes from the intimacy. Resurrection hope, friends, that is what we have in Christ who died and was resurrected. We can see it fully because of our cross eyes. These guys only see it partially, but they would have thought back into the words of Jesus, these last words that he gave to them before he prayed. 
What else can Jesus do? What else can God do if we allow him? He can turn our confusion into faith. He can turn mere believers into true disciples. You see in verse 29, the disciples are like, oh, okay, now we get it. Now you're speaking clearly. We understand. No more questions required. We get all that you're saying. Now we believe that you were sent from God. And Jesus, when he answers them, what does he say? Verse 31, he says, do you now believe? But it's where we put the emphasis, the emphasis that makes all the difference. Do you now believe? Or do you now believe? I don't think it was either of those. I think it was a rhetorical question. Do you now believe? Look, really? You really now believe? You think you do? Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. Hours from now, not even days or months, hours from now, you are going to run. You are going to be scattered to the four winds. You are going to run home and whimper under your beds in the fetal position. You are going to disown me. Some of you are even going to publicly say you don't know me. You're going to deny me. It's actually Jesus giving them a harsh reality, this kind of rebuke about what is, what is coming. What takes, if you're wondering, what takes mere believers and makes them true disciples? Faithfulness through suffering. Here, Jesus ends and he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And the word there is a word um, shalom, uh, where we get that word it's talking about more than just a cessation of violence and so on. It's talking about uh, the actual instigation of peace, actually Jesus giving us peace and giving us relational harmony with each other and with the Lord himself. Jesus is saying this quarter is coming. This next quarter is going to be brutal. Ready yourselves for it, guys. It's going to be super gnarly. I'm telling you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why? So that in the middle of their hardship, in the middle of their suffering, they can think there is another perspective. There is a game plan beyond which I can fully understand. And then he ends. He ends this whole farewell discourse with these words. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, when we get to application of this, uh, there's a couple of things that I want to bring in here, both of which came about from conversations. As a, someone who prepares sermons from time to time, I love to do it in community. I believe that the Lord speaks through Scripture and he also speaks through the power of community. And I was asking some friends about what they thought about this passage. And one of them said, yeah, okay, okay, Nick, I get it that God has the power to turn our, our mourning into dancing, our, our sadness into joy. He can turn us from, from confusion into faith. He can, he can turn us from being mere believers into true disciples. I get it. But how? And she said, how can he do that? And here's the thing. As a pastor, you probably notice that we sometimes do this. I just keep on asking questions. It's actually called Socratic questioning, where, where I believe that God, who has infused his people with the power of his Holy Spirit, has already given them the answers. And so it's just up to us to, to call out of them the answers that God has already given them. I just let her continue to speak. And she actually did. She came up with an answer of her own. She said, it's kind of like a surfer. You know, it's the power of the ocean that moves the surfer along. No question. It's the power of the, the, the untamable, almost unfathomable power of the ocean that propels the surfer. But the surfer doesn't do nothing. 
The surfer positions himself in the right place for the wave. The surfer understands their equipment. The surfer, if they're a wise surfer, surrounds themselves with other surfers who know what they're doing. They're fit. They know what they're... And it's just like that spiritually. How could we have this turn happen in our lives where we can be infused with resurrection hope and resurrection change? I believe it's by us being attentive surfers, by us being spiritually attentive to all that God has for us, seeking him out, knowing our equipment, surrounding ourselves with other surfers. Friends, we miss you here at church. We miss your friendship here at church. And we also miss the role that you're going to play in the coming weeks and months. You, believe it or not, you at some future moment are going to be welcoming someone, bringing someone along here to church who otherwise would not have been welcomed, may not have been welcomed. You're going to get to do that. But friends, all of this, be a surfer that positions yourself. Be a a true disciple who positions yourself to be moved along by the power of God. And the second thing and the last thing is this. We are to get our eyes off of ourselves. Now that may sound harsh. And if you are struggling right now, If you are in deep depression or deep hardship, our hearts go out to you. As a church family, we want to come around you. We want to care for you materially. We want to care for you through prayer ministry. We have counseling ministry. We want to come around you and care for you. So that's if you're in the the deepest of depression. But friends, for most of us, most of the time right now is just really awful. And we just want to get through it. But here's what we need to do. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. I want to put a challenge to you, church. I'm going to do this over the next week. I'm going to pick one 24-hour period where I am not going to think about my own suffering. And don't worry, you can postpone it. You can think about it 24 hours later. Don't worry about that. But for an entire day, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus and I'm going to fix my eyes on the people around me and the struggles that they are going through. Now, in a second, we're going to um, break for worship and then we're going to um, have the Lord's Supper together. So you might want to get ready for that. But I want to say what I'm talking about today, what I'm preaching today, what I believe the Word of God says today, I know it to be true on the basis of Scripture and on the basis of how I have seen God move. I want to end with a story about my mum and dad. It seems appropriate to honour them. You know, when I was about nine and a half years old, mum and dad were separated. They were on the way to getting a divorce. They didn't know the Lord and it was really bad. I mean, I was a kid, I was there. They were terrible together. But the only thing we hated more than them being together was them being apart because they were dreadful apart as well. Months had gone by when they'd each been doing their own thing. Dad's friend had become a crazy nut bar Christian. And he came to my dad and said, John, you've got to come to church and check it out. And dad was like, no effing way am I going to come to church. You and your weird medieval church stuff and no absolute way. His friend persisted, kept saying, John, you've got to come and check it out. I wonder, do we persist as friends? What does love look like at that point? I think it looks like the friend who kindly and lovingly and graciously persists dad eventually gave in he said okay I'm going to come one time then you're going to shut up about it you don't talk about God you don't talk about Jesus none of this church stuff nothing his friends like okay and dad went to this little church this day and he walked in and almost fell over with shock because sitting in the pews was my mum now 
This was an unbelievable coincidence. I think a God incidence, right? My mum, how's this, had been driving past that church the day before and something had drawn her to it. She'd done a U-turn and gone back and she thought, I just need some community. Can you believe it? And she looked down the service times. Apparently she missed the service time she was meant to go to because us kids had been ratty. So she went to this church service, this little church, a city of a million people. Two radically unchurched, unsaved, atheist, broken people. And dad came in and mum was there. He was so shocked. He went in and sat next to her. And they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know. What are you doing here? And then they like, listened. And that day, dad gave his heart to the Lord. And he came back and eventually he talked mum into taking him back. Now, I was a kid. I was there. I saw the BC and the AD in their lives. I could see that God had the power to turn mourning into dancing. He could turn sadness into joy. God could turn confusion and anarchy and heartache into faith and lives of purpose. And he eventually could turn non-believers into believers and believers into true disciples. Friends, I want you to know that I absolutely believe this stuff. I believe it with all of my heart. Right now, we're going to get ready We're going to have a song of worship while we get our hearts ready for communion. And we're going to take it. We're going to get ready for this week, setting our hearts again on the Lord. So would you join me? Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.